Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It felt like a painful wound that kept being scratched at by by governments who shirk from responsibility and from real change. Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild, a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life. Here we will continue my 10-year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection more awakeness, less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. On today's podcast, I'm going to thrash out a wild idea that is deeply uncomfortable. It's an idea I heard sitting in an audience at the opening night of the Sydney Writers' Festival some months back, and the presentation featured unapologetically an all-female, all-Indigenous panel of writers, including Wiradjuri woman Tara June Winch, who is my guest today. Just one thing, I just can I just give the teenagers outside, because they're going to knock on the door for mon- bus money. I'll just give them bus money. <laughs> Take two seconds. Yeah, do it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Tara spoke from Paris, where she was locked out of Australia, denied being on country due to Australia's lacking repatriation care. I was there in the audience with my Indigenous foster daughter. So all three panellists used the forum to convey their grief around the inequities and cruelty of Australian government policy and public discourse at the moment, around the destruction of land and Indigenous sites for coal exploration, the fact that we are at the bottom of the list of just about all international rankings on climate policy, like the very bottom, like 200 out of 200 countries in the OECD, and also around the treatment of our First Nations peoples. 30 years after the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody, almost nothing has been done, and far from closing the gap, this gap has widened, and calls for constitutional recognition have been dismissed. But it was something that Tara said that hit square in the solar plexus and it caused an an audible sob in the audience. This is what she said. What Australia looks like from the outside is an unwell country. It looks like being Aussie is a mental health crisis, a national crisis of identity. All egalitarian but none of the justice. All words, no action. All that open space and so many confined in cells all the freedom of speech and none of the critique, all those mates, 
get all that violence. And so the wild idea I want to discuss with Tara is that being Australian is a mental health crisis, which is really, really uncomfortable. It's also wild because Australia and Australians for decades have defined themselves otherwise in in a really parochial way. And I lived overseas for the better part of about 20 years now, and the storyline has reached all the foreign shores. And some of you listening from overseas might have bought into it, that Australians are egalitarian, that we're open and progressive. She's, she'll be right, and he's the affable larrikin. And we're all loved like attractive neighbours in a cul-de-sac. But now, of course, we're singled out as one of four nations threatening the planet, along with China, Brazil and Russia. And earlier this year, the UN Human Rights Council pointed to Australia for its inexcusable abuses. So how does it feel for our identity to be in such a crisis, to be the cruel and dangerous country, not the free and fair one? I reached out to Tara, who, as I mentioned, is a Wiradjuri author, Her most recent book, The Yield, won the 2020 Miles Franklin Literary Award, plus a whole host of others. And she's currently working on her next book in the country outside Paris. Tara, welcome to Wild. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. It's a a real um, joy to actually get to speak to you. Um, But look, my understanding is you're writing your next book in France, and I would love to kick off by just asking... Uh, you about your writing or creative process because it's something most people are fascinated by. And I know previously you have said uh, that you have to be manic to write and I'm wondering if that's still the case. Yeah, the last novel was manic at the end. It was um, it was a, a, a long process. It was about 10 years working on the same manuscript. But then as the threads all came together toward the end of the the project where I could sort of see the horizon of the end of the book, then how the, the complete narrative would go. At that point, it felt so uncomfortable. Writing's not a joy for me. It's it's kind of torturous. It's it's painful. And so, in order to actually get to that finish line, I had to. The only thing that worked for me was to be in this sort of sense of mania, this lack of sleep, this um, sort of never leaving the desk, um, never really engaging so much with my family except to cook meals and then run back to the desk. It was, it was a, a try, I think a trying time, a difficult time, and I just had to be sort of sleeping and waking and thinking about these characters and just and, and running at that end point. I think that was the mania that I was talking about previously in the interview yeah it's a form of madness I relate um I almost allow my kite string to go out to its full length because it's out there that is the space that I can write in um and then there's that process of having to bring the kite back in afterwards and get your health back on track is that the same for you absolutely but it just didn't I don't think it really happened for me Sarah in terms of yeah, bringing the kite back. Every time I tried to, it was um, pre-publicity. It was, you know, overseas writers' festival festivals. Then it was, you know, constant um, publicity awards, shortlists, longlists, and all the sort of obligations that go with that. And then also, you know, 
commitments to the literary community. Um, so yeah, every time I tried to pull that kite in, another gust of wind would push it out. And I've still, you know, it's been two years since it out, since it's out, and maybe two and a half years since the complete edits have done. But I honestly have struggled so much to get back to a point where I'm in my flow, I'm working in my flow, but I am also um, caring for myself and looking after my body. I'm that that point where you're where you're actually finding a balance in work and in like sound mental health and sound physical health. Yeah, I haven't found it. I don't, every day I wake up and I have this discussion with myself. I do my gratitude. I have a prayer. Um, but every morning I struggle with how am I going to find that balance? How's this creativity going to sit in my life without completely obliterating it, you know? Yeah, but I know um, we were just talking off air while we were sorting out sound stuff, but I know you're a, a Nietzsche fan and um, actually it might be really good to share just the really quick chat that we had. Um, I noticed that you'd been exploring some ideas in and around Nietzsche and um, the idea of eternal return and that you, it was, you, know, you referred to it as your Swiss book. And I was like, ah, oh, in my latest book, which actually came out in 2020, um, I actually followed in the footsteps of Nietzsche and you said, you know, was, was I in Sils Maria and I was in a small valley outside of Sils Maria where you can only hike in there, no cars are allowed or you can catch a horse and cart. Um, you go there to write. Yeah, I do. For the last, since 2000 and end of 2016, I've been going there a lot. Yeah, wow. Um, I knew that writers went there. I mean, there's a whole long legacy of writers who've gone there to hike and to stay in the little museum, this tiny little cottage in the centre of the village. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was the only kind of Australian that's ever been there, which is funny. It's not a touristic town. All the tourists that are there have sort of been going there for five generations. It's a different type of tourism, I think. And the the people that usually, the writers that usually stay in the house now are Nietzsche scholars um, or, you know, philosophy sort of professors and whatnot. So I always feel a bit like the odd one out that well, the Australian I, yeah, I is didn't, um, writing a novel. I didn't know that it was the sort of the place where Nietzsche wrote Thus Spoke Zarathustra. I actually went there following in the footsteps of Heidi. Do you remember that book? Did you ever read it as a kid? by Joanne Spree about, and it was turned into a, a Disney movie with Shirley Temple, um, where a young girl is um, left despairing, she's an orphan, left despairing in the face of industrialisation in the late 1800s in exactly the same era that Nietzsche was writing about the same thing and she gets sent to the mountains out in, in Switzerland to get better and to live with her grandfather amidst goats and just walking the mountain ranges. It turns out she, in this fictional book, was hiking the range next to the ranges that Nietzsche was also hiking to escape industrialisation in exactly the same era, like give or take a year or two. I think I've heard of it. Yeah, I think that's opposite. It's opposite the Engadine on the other side. That's exactly um, it. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I just mostly stayed on our side, <laughs> Valfex, <laughs> and I used to walk up Valfex all the time. Um, and I actually was walk, checking up there one day early on and it 
sort of inspired parts of the book and accidentally took one of the cattle trails instead of the, the proper path and was sort of this on this precarious cliff <laughs> and this shepherd from Alpmund, you might remember Alpmund. Yes. And he had um, unpasteurized sort of milk sitting outside to drink for, for wayward travellers um, <laughs> or lost hikers. And he sort of found me and sent me to his hut to drink milk. Anyway, it's a really dear place to my heart and um, it feels there's – I can understand why Nietzsche went there to, to for his health reasons, mental health and physical health reasons, because the way – what the air does to the body and the mind is I've never experienced be- before in any um, – in any like mountain range or flatland or plateau, wherever, there's, there's something overwhelmingly spiritual that happens to me there um, that mm-hmm. I'm trying to express in this book through my characters. And, yeah, it's just it's taking a long time, yeah. I took seven years to write one of my books and three years to write the most recent one. And to quote Ira Glass, anything any good, any good takes a long time. That's the mantra I work to. But um, I want to move on to something that happened not long after you published your first book at just 22, Swallow the Air. And um, a couple of years later it was, um, and you were in your mid-20s, the right-wing News Corp columnist and Fox-esque talk show host Andrew Bolt wrote a column claiming that you and other Indigenous writers were choosing to be Aboriginal to get ahead. And it was very controversial and, of course, it went to the federal court and he lost the case. Um, And I should say, Tara, I used to share a page when I was probably 23, 24 with Andrew Bolt on the opinion pages in the Herald Sun and, and it syndicated around Australia. And I was the youngest columnist in the News Corp stable at the time. And uh, I d- definitely know what it's like to have Andrew Bolt go at you and anything resembling something left of centre. But what I want to do is just, I'm just going to read out some of the lines from it and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, he wrote, and this is sort of um, bits and pieces of, of the original article, which I don't recommend you go and look up because it just gives more hits to the to the page. But what happened to wanting us all to become colour blind? I certainly don't accuse them, that's you and the other writers, of opportunism. Even if full blood Aborigines may wonder how such fair people can claim to be one of them and in some cases take black jobs. In fact, let's go beyond racial pride, beyond black and white. Let's be proud only of being human beings and not to invent such racist and trivial excuses to divide. Deal? Question mark. This is how he finished the column. Mm. It brings up a lot of complexity in and around, I think, a lot of stuff that happens with Indigenous voices in Australia. But I wanted to, I guess, ask how you felt about the very personal taunt that you're being required to justify or explain your Aboriginality. How did it feel and how does it feel today? I mean, it's kind of rubbish. It's not, it wasn't just writers, it was um, academics and um, professors and people who had really worked for the community and worked for their people for many, many decades, um, had dedicated their lives to this work and it wasn't people who heard, were sort of basking in riches or anything like that. And the simple 
attack on me was that I'd basically written a book. That's that's it. And I was um, working um, sort of as a sort of peer reviewer at the Australia Council for the Arts. And I was doing charity work for Indigenous Literacy Foundation. I mean, that was it. That was his mm. stance, sort of like argument that I was... Capitalising. Yeah, it was so bizarre. And it, he didn't even get all those facts right, but that was the reality of... Um, he just jumbled all that together. Look, it broke me because I know who I am. I grew up in a really proud Aboriginal family. Um, I've got fair skin like my mother. My siblings had darker skin like my father. And that that's just a reality. And I explored that in my first book, actually. You know, my character, May, is trying to understand how she belongs in her family as the light-skinned child. Uh, in her community as growing up in this strip of housing commission surrounded by sort of beachfront um, mansions and then also like in the wider context how she fits in as a product of the stolen generation within Australian history in the context of Australia in contemporary time which is like the 90s early 2000s so it's not like I was hiding the fact that I have fair skin or or didn't um completely discuss these ideas of me benefiting every single day from from white privilege. It was something that I was exploring in my fiction and I think it's it's a valid point to be explored. It broke me to be bullied because I was I've really kept under the radar and just tried to keep my head down and and mm. mentor other writers and and be part of this great community and do charity work on the side and help my community and just be a creative person and explore these ideas that were important to me that I questioned as as a young um, tween and, and teenager. So yeah. it, it is what it is. And, um, you know, it's, you just, you just move on. I mean, pain is inevitable in life and misery is a choice. And I wasn't going to um, make that choice around, around um, a person who sort of, not enjoys, but yeah, enjoys to be. He likes to prod. Right, a pr- prodder, but whatever. It's at, like live and let live, or whatever the saying is. Just, just, I'm just beat. I just um, moved on from that. It did hurt though. And it did, the, the one thing it did, it crippled my confidence. Um, I mm. felt that I, I, did, I took a long time to write this book, particularly because of that. That's just, but that was just my work that I had to do on myself, you know? Yeah, but Mm. I guess um, in many ways what he was articulating is a debate, if we can call it that, um, that has existed in Australia for a long time, that, well, if your skin isn't black, then how can you claim to be Aboriginal and get the benefits and get all these boons that apparently Aboriginal people get that, I'm sorry, I'm struggling to see how, um, you know, <laughs> it's really a boon for Aboriginal people in this country. But there's this idea that there's this, you've got to justify all of this and you've got to um, argue the nuances every time it comes up. And I I remember reading Teja Cole, who's a, a, a poet and a black activist in the US, and he has said that, you know, every time he's got to go back and explain black theory to white people who want to question him, 
it's a waste of his time. He's got other things to do. He's got more progressive things to do. And he has a phrase, which is catch up, like catch up around these nuances and the and the 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 detail and and the very very personal and um, historic stuff that is required to understand to be able to discuss this intelligently. Is that something mm. that you feel frustrated by? Is that why you're saying that? Well, you know, it just happened, and I've moved on, and um, you know, is there a frustration or a sort of almost a giving inness that you have experienced because it's just so exhausting? It is exhausting and I couldn't go through the Racial Discrimination Act because I was living in New York at the time um, and I just felt too far away from the issue and I felt that the elders in that group of nine people had it, that they, were, they had it um, under control. I didn't, I didn't need my sort of weakness in that at that point. But you know what, over the years, it's never really happened again. I'm very vocal about um, my physical appearance. Anyone that has an understanding of our history knows that um, white Australia has a black history and Australia has a history of um, the stolen generations of removing children from families. That kind of impact of colonialism means that we ha- some of some of our families have fair skin. And our families, the, the thing, the um, term that has to be um, sort of focused on there is family. Our families know that we are Indigenous, we are part of, of the whole still, but it's, it's that impact um, of colonialism that is the reason that the East Coast and other parts of Australia where there's been a... Um, sort of concerted and violent and, and, and attempted genocide on Indigenous peoples is the reason that there's fair skin history. Like, it's really obvious. And I, th- mm. I think people are catching up. I don't think um, it's the same as whenever that was, 15 years ago, something like that, you know? Yeah. I think I, I, it comes through really clearly and if I go back to that Tejar Cole quote of, you know, catch up, well, in some ways I think your book in many ways, it, it, it's the handbook you can hand to people if they're wanting to actually genuinely catch up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're sort of um, bringing the conversation to what I refer to as the wild idea that I picked up from you in 
um, your t- speech at the Sydney Writers Festival that you gave from from Paris. And, you know, it was this idea that from the outside, being locked out of your own country, so to speak, um, you were seeing that being Aussie or to be Aussie is a mental health crisis and that it Australia doesn't feel like home. Can I just ask you, does that bring sadness and grief? I mean, it is mine. I think I was being, I wasn't being histrionic. I was sort of, you know, it was another um, blow not being able to come home and to the country where um, my ancestors, you know, were the original owners. Like it's so bizarre to be locked out of a nation as a citizen. It just, it's sort of, it's that catchphrase word of 2020 unprecedented. It really is that it, and that it's carried on so long. Um, it is my home, but when you are denied entry, it doesn't feel like it. It was more a feeling, it wasn't um, a statement. It was the, this around Sydney Writers Festival was just the infighting and, and the constant sort of um, denial of, the residue of history that's still here, that still um, affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, especially within their interaction with the justice system. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a sort of wailing, I guess, when I wrote that really quickly. Um, and a really, mm. yeah, and I felt it. It doesn't, didn't feel home it felt what is it Sarah it felt like a painful wound that kept being scratched at by by governments who shirk from responsibility and from real change yeah Um, and it just feels like that groundhog day since you're a kid yeah yeah a similar feeling when you know with the um, with the downfall of Kabul lately, you know, that that record that's been playing in the background of our lives for 20 years. Like we grew up with this, this war on terror, this war in Afghanistan, and then for it to all flip back and um, to begin again, this horror to begin again, yeah? Yeah. And this never-ending horror. Unresolved. Unresolved, yeah. And coming back to Nietzsche and the idea of eternal return, that life that is living over and over and over again, this um, that Groundhog Day that exists within our within our globe, these issues. I mean, it's the same thing with climate change. You can look at so many issues globally where it's the residential schools in Canada, anywhere, the Amazonians. Um, it's just... I think that's where despair kind of comes from. It, and it's linked to that quote about madness, doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Yeah, yeah. I think it, despair comes in that continual um, conversation, that continual argument, that continual push and, and nothing changing. Yeah, and what I what I talk from your speech is the notion of belonging and I think this is also where our despair, our overwhelm, our grief, our anger, our frustration a polarisation is coming from is because I think as a humanity, as a species, so many of us don't know where we belong. But if we bring it back to the a 
Australian identity crisis, which I think is palpable. I think it's very real and that's what I really related to when you were talking about this idea that we are sick as a nation and I just wonder whether a nation can be whole and integrated if it denies its history. It's like this in cognitive dissonance or, you know, psychology terms. It takes so much emotional work to deny the truth and that is what we have done for over 200 years. Um, And I think James Baldwin you know, once said, you know, for change to come about, you've got to still first face things. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, nothing can change and, unless it is faced. Yeah, it's true. At the heart of our national mental illness is that fact of unbelonging, is being um, fearful and ashamed or dismissive of the past. And I think by going through the past, going that entering um, that truth-telling is is a path to, to, to healing, to that um, true reparation and reconciliation rather than just this um, constant, constant sort of tokenised... Um, yeah, rhetoric, and I think you say it's all talk and no action um, mm. in, in, in that talk you did to the Writers' Festival. But I think in many ways I think some of us have seen it coming because we've had in Australia, and I, I know... Europe has grappled with this throughout its history and the US has had to grapple it recently as it's confronted some of its Indigenous history as well, as well as its black history. Um, And it's had its comeuppance, you know. It's gone through some very rough times, including in 2008, you know, there was the recession. Now, Australia came off so lightly. We have had 30 years of uninterrupted opulence, economic growth, and I feel that as a nation... You get quite flaccid and just kind of non-questioning and also caught up in in an inability to talk nuances when you are comfortable. And it often takes discomfort or a a slapdown to to start to question things. Also, when you are on a pedestal, it's not in your interest to step down and have a good hard look at yourself. And I feel that that's where Australia's at. But I feel that it's often when you go as an outsider, which you are, you're an outsider living in Paris, living in France, I should say, unable to get back into the country. And so you do have to have a good hard look at the country that you left behind, which is what, of course, August um, does when she returns home. Um, she'd been living in, in the UK for, for many years and finally goes home to confront what she couldn't solve when she ran away. But I just sort of wonder, there's the being away actually physically out of the country, but also when you're marginalised in a culture as Aboriginal people have been, as have women to a certain extent, um, and migrants and so on, then, you know, we have cause to question. But Australia as a nation, in terms of that parochial kind of talk about she'll be right and it's all egalitarian, we haven't questioned it for 30 years. And I'm wondering, as somebody who's living outside, on the outside, how are you seeing people react to Australia now? Well, I think the sort of consensus is that it's a utopia, geographic utopia or physical utopia, but also on the there's a real understanding that it's a racist country. And that's not just about the treatment of Indigenous people. It's not just about being a nation that imprisons its 10-year-old 
First Nations children. Um, it's about a long history of dismissal um, of the other. It's about, you know, um, Tampa goes back to, to Christmas Island. It's about how our treatment of the other. Um, and having no sort of grasp on actually being the other, actually being migrants ourselves, actually being at sea, um, as as all Australians are, they're all from somewhere else, um, except for our First Nations people. But of course, my mother's side of the family are from somewhere else. So you're right about the pedestal, and I didn't think about it so much as in economics, you know, about um, comfort. Yeah, that comfort, and not even, that's a comfort's a um, comfort's an understatement. You know, such a rich country. Privilege. Yeah, really privileged. Um, but, you know, with the pandemic and the sort of the way that it's now actually feeling like it's impacting Australians in a really, um, in a way that it has in Europe where you've got the lockdowns, but you've also got the actual fear because the numbers are rising. You know, you've got that um, extreme danger. It's not just a few cases in the in the community. Um I think that it is an opportunity for Australia to to reckon with its with its privilege. Yeah, isn't it ironic that we find ourselves having to go inside to then take on the outsider perspective that we were talking about, whether as a uh, somebody on the margins or somebody having to live out of outside of Australia, looking back in. It's like, you know, I think it's we're up to about 15 million people in lockdown. Um, we go inside and we've got an opportunity to have a good hard look at ourselves from inside and sort of looking to the outside world and wondering how do we want to be as Australians going forward? I mean, and literature is a really way, good way to, to access all those questions. Um, what do you read to kind of access those questions? What am I reading? <laughs> or have you read that um, you could recommend to us in our lockdown oh, misery? I mean, Australia's spoilt in terms of First Nation stories and in terms of accessing, you know, those incredible um, timeless stories and those incredible narratives that really question the um, status quo and all these, you know, all these issues of belonging in nationhood, this stuff like too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko, um, Anita Heiss's River of Dreams, um, After Story by Larissa Brent, you know, Tony Birch has got new books out constantly. There's a huge um, next generation of writers too, like Evelyn, Evelyn who spoke at um, Sydney Writers Festival. So, I mean, um, Jazz Money just brought out a book of poetry. I mean, there's so so much there it's all um it's all available it's not in the australiana section or in a sort of indie distribution where it's not readily available it's there it's in your face and my bookshop is selling coffee at the moment and where you go to pay for your coffee um about half of those books are in the front lineup you know on the bench um it's amazing and that never happened a few years ago never yeah um what do you miss about Australia? I know you've previously mentioned Dettol, the smell of Dettol. 
my God, where did you hear that? You said it. <laughs> was there, did we, was oh, it was like, in that speech. Sorry. It was too. Yeah. It was too, yeah. actually. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. When I ordered that bottle and it came in the post and I was unscrewed the job, I, was, I knew what would happen. You know, all these memories flushing back, flooding back of sort of weekend cleaning, my mother cleaning or being in the bathtub with half a cap um, <laughs> when you're sick. I yeah. don't know if your parents yeah. ever did that, but oh gosh, I just love what um, how the senses can access memory. I found yeah. that really inspiring for my writing. That's a that's a part. Going back to that writing creativity process, creative process. You know, um, trying to unlock things that are in that filing cabinet of my mind and soul is a real part of of my writing, it's just to get to um, that poetic, musical, like philosophical memory and then write from there. So I'm just, yeah, dead old, that was really special. I don't know <laughs> if this is helpful at all, but as a nexus, um, you talked about having to access a certain amount of mania. Um, you know, bi- bipolar um, sufferers, if you want to call it that, um, mm-hmm. have often very acute senses of smell and smell is very much part of that euphoric connection. So I very much relate the wildness and going out and letting the kite fly. It's often about accessing those full sensual um, abilities and it's, it operates at a biological level or evolutionary level. Often it was the highly attuned, highly sensitive overthinkers who would actually protect the clan, the tribe, the the, the whole, you know, the group of chimpanzees, whatever it might have been, because they were so attuned. Um, and they often became community leaders. So a large number of community leaders, shaman, um, displayed what are now seen as bipolar behaviours, including an acute sense of smell. So there you go. There's the connection. Yeah. It's always been so important to me. It's always brought me um, to like a creative centre. There's one last question I wanted to ask and it fits in with this kind of creative process. But I read somewhere that you you see yourself as a very flawed human and you refer to a 3am moment. And I know those 3am moments where you go and look in the mirror in the fluorescent glow of the bathroom. And it's a very lonely but a very confronting moment. And I think you said it's where you're honest with yourself and it's this sort of moment of reckoning. And I think you said, I just wanted, I just wanted to listen to that voice, the voice that you access at 3am and get on the right path, but I'm not there yet. Mm. Is that something you still feel? Are you there yet? No, like I said, like I wake up every morning going, can't be right. Like play the tape through. What's the next right decision? Do it. No, I just have this self-destructive um, side and it and it comes into my career. It has. It's, it, there's been me battling against my own self-sabotage my whole career, you know. Um, yeah. Not feeling like I um, am worthy of, of when, when I'm achieving something and I sort of get to that nev- next level. Um, there's a, I'm not sure if you've read um, The Great Leap when you're when you're accessing um, you know when you're achieving when you're sort of going up a ladder or, and then 
there's something inside you, um, this sort of, sorry, I lose so many English words over here, Um, (laughs) this self-doubt, yeah, and this, Mm -hmm. um, like, this lack of self-belief and self-worth that you are allowed to to have any sort of success above what you're comfortable with. And there's this uh, sort of... um, Back, back player sort of that cuts you down, that sort of makes you ill at this time when you're when you're about to achieve something great, or you know, just yeah. sabotages. Yeah, this 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 sabotage that you're not even so, so conscious that you're actually doing. It's like um, uh, a knee jerk reaction to to success, and so I yeah I battle with that all the time, trying not to self-sabotage and then on the other side of it um trying not to be destructive not trying not to follow that romance of the creative to be Mm. um broken and to have to to have to be broken to to write um a beautiful sentence (laughs) you know I don't want to be like that otherwise I won't live very long um because it's it's not a sustainable way to to be creative, so I stopped drinking alcohol because alcohol was um, always used by me in sort of a medicinal creative way, almost like a dragnet to go down to that deeper in the into the ocean mm. where you know the blue water turns black into that emotional ocean. And I realised during the pandemic that it was no longer an aid for writing, that it had become a balm for fear, that I was using alcohol to to deal with anxiety. Yeah. Which is just so problematic um, because it's anxiety <laughs> and worry um, is sort of the, like, constant headline of our lives at the moment. Yeah. So, um in order to gain some control over my that balance I was talking about before, having that flow, but also having that physical and mental and spiritual balance, was to to look at the common denominator in my problems, and that was um, me and my relationship with alcohol. So mm. that's been that's been part of my process of coming out from being a tortured person. I think. And is another part of it being an Australian on the outside and the sense of belonging? I mean, because what I hear from you is this lack of belonging within yourself, being able to sit with that 3am voice and trust Mm. it. Mm. Do you think it parallels what is going on for you as an Indigenous woman and a woman living outside of Australia who can't get back in? For sure, and it just exacerbated that exacerbated that feeling of of worrying and anxiety and that wail of of homesickness. And I think homesickness it's such a throwaway kind of um, phrase, but I think it's I think it's very real. Like it's a spiritual um, a break that happens when you're away from home and and country and and family for too long. And I can I've felt that so keenly the last couple of years, just needing to be to be home. But yeah, it's more that, you know, 
there's the hula hoop around me. I can control at the moment during a pandemic whatever's inside the hula hoop. Yeah. Outside the hula hoop, I can't do anything about. And so making sh- sort of going internal in that way, and this comes back to belonging um, and, you know, that sense of um, Australian identity as well, coming back to that hula hoop and saying, how, what can I do to change? What can I do to be um, a good ally? What can I do to be part of this um, healing of a national psyche, which is understanding country, understanding the history of country, the language attached to country. I mean, it starts in the self. All change starts in the self. Yeah. And then from that hula hoop, you, you can step outside, you know, it's in the community. This is my belief of change anyway. And then it, it, it should then go out like a ripple effect. Um, well, I think that's a really lovely note to finish on and I just want to actually refer back to a very big theme in the yield, which is the focus on language, which we've talked about in our chat. And um, you do point out or one of the characters, the grandfather, um, August's grandfather, um, Poppy, says that the, it, to yield in English means like what we reap, what we can take from the land. That's the yield. But in Wiradjuri, it's the things you give to. It's the movement and it's the space and the stillness between things. And it's such a different kind of take on the same type of word. And I think what you're talking to is this idea of of giving, seeing the same word as giving as opposed to taking. And I think there's a big lesson for Australia in that. And giving up, I think, that yielding, yielding to old the old adage, you know, the old ideas um, and giving up on your knees. You know, if you're giving up on your knees, you can touch the earth. You're close to the ground. Yeah, it was more um, a feeling, that title, but, um, and it just, it just stayed with me. I get it. I get it. Um, thank you so much, Tara. I wish you so much balanced living for the writing of your next book. Um, and I can't wait to read it when it comes out and I hope it does include some Nietzsche references. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah. <laughs> My I pleasure. Hope it's a, I hope it's a peaceful um, next book for you too. I'll have to send you a copy of my book as well, which is very much about the same thing about nature as Path Forward. I've got all your books. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I would never assume that. I'll send them to you for a um, signature. We should do a little swap. Yeah, let's do that. I've got a copy of yours here. All right, we'll chat soon. Let's stay in touch. Good luck. Thanks so much, Sarah. See you, mate. Bye. Bye. I'm not sure if there's much I can add to that chat with Tara, except to probably acknowledge that questioning our identity and having a good hard look at ourselves is always uncomfortable. And it's exactly what it's meant to be, uncomfortable. I also have to say that I do get awkward and often really uncomfortable and self-conscious talking to these themes of identity with First Nations people because I'm aware I'm not caught up. I've not done all the work and I've probably not listened. And I think that to fully 
resolve this sense of lack of belonging, this mental health crisis that Tara calls it, it won't happen until we've really listened. And in Australia, we need to listen to the First Nations people in their language, which, and look, the best, the best form of that language is the language of the land, of nature. Pretty much like the character August in The Yield, I escape Australia on a regular basis to really come to grips with my my belonging, my sense of belonging. But I do keep coming back over and over again to resolve what I haven't resolved back home. People ask me, why do I keep coming back to Australia? And I've got to say, it is the land, it's the nature, it's the smells of the eucalyptus when you first, first step off the plane, it's the sound of the birds. That is my belonging. It's It's an incredible language to tap into and I think it could be the way that we resolve this mental health crisis. Anyway, I've put the list of the books that Tara mentions in the show notes and um, I hope you all enjoy catching up and staying wild. Until next time. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.